Hello, welcome to Rising with the Tide. I'm Skander. I'm joined by Jamie, as always. <laughs> who is, uh, if you're watching the video version, Jamie is uh, has disappeared. He's been replaced by the Nether. <laughs> it's just a hole. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're this is episode 39. But technically, this is episode 49 because we, if we add the LUXR episodes that we've done, we're very, very close to episode 50, which is quite exciting. 50 interviews at least, uh, which. It's kind of insane. I mean, soon enough, we'll have the entire academia uh, on <laughs> on our show. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, any paper will come out. We'll be like, yeah, we've we've talked to them. <laughs> it's uh, no, but it's always been a pleasure. And I know that, you know, the numbers do seem to suggest that people also enjoy a bit our show. So this is always nice. Uh, the streaming will come back very soon. Just need to have a, a bit of a fix in terms of Internet and tech. And yeah, as always, a big thank you to our Patreons. I wanted to start the episode with that today because uh, last episode I forgot to say, but yeah, big thank you to everyone for donating, uh, whether it's a few euros or more, because it's without this, we really could not do the show. Um, the show is now self-sustaining, which is awesome. And it just means we don't have to worry about that kind of thing. And with that, uh, that little intro out of the way, Today, we have Paul Gilbert with us, who's a teacher and senior lecturer in international development at the University of Sussex in the UK. Thank you for having me on here. Um, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Let's uh, maybe just get right into it. Your research touches obviously on international development in general, but uh, it's quite a critical kind of uh, view of international development and development topics. Um, we are going to focus on two kind of major parts of this, but uh, I think that, you know, we can maybe start with a little bit of kind of how you view your research and how uh, you've reached this kind of field and, and what got you into yeah. the field. I think that's always a nice way to learn a bit about you. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so I have a background originally in, uh, in anthropology. Um, but I kind of have drifted a little bit uh, and worked in geography and other departments as well. Um, so a lot of, well, kind of half my uh, research and teaching, I guess, falls into the broad area of political ecology. Um, and that comes out of an interest in um, the impact of mining projects, right? Um, which is where I think a fair bit of the stuff we're going to talk about today uh, mm -hmm. comes from uh, originally. Um, and then there's a kind of another half of my interests that are le less political ecology based, but come from a similar interest in um, in trying to figure out what was going on with some mining projects, which has taken me more down the line of uh, being concerned with legal arrangements and financial arrangements and um relationships between mining com companies and the state um so that kind of uh, maybe more political economy or sort of economic geography aspects of uh, yeah. development uh, is half what i do and then the other half is the political ecology stuff um most recently i was involved in a project led by um mary menton uh a uh, researcher and co-founder of the NGO Not One More, an environmental mm -hmm. defender solidarity organization, and uh, 
that is with Mary and her colleagues is where I've been doing a lot of the work in, in this area. Um, the longer story of how I got involved in it <laughs> is just not really, <laughs> is, is uh, various sorts of discomfort with uh, the way I was taught anthropology as an undergrad, um, mm-hmm. a desire Ooh. to learn about kind of political ecology issues from a different direction studying botany for a bit realizing that wasn't what I wanted to do either botany, okay. <laughs> uh, but sort of staying um yeah uh, and then realizing that uh, that was taking me down a less political ecology route <laughs> mm-hmm. and then I kind of veered back into uh into ID which uh, at Sussex is a very nice interdisciplinary place to be uh, where it's easy to kind of bring these these kind of issues together would you call yourself a political ecologist? Uh, not, <laughs> as know, like a, yeah. not as necessarily a primary identity. Okay, yeah, because um, I know that identity is a big like thing, it seems, at least in my department, which is also kind of development environment. Uh, it, a lot of people have, you know, people describe themselves as like human geographer, geographer, political geographer, political ecologist. It's like all these different words. Yeah, I um, I'm I'm fine with social scientist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have a particular sort of uh, depth of feeling about any one mm. identity, but I'm also maybe not as uh, well versed in or haven't ha- you know contributed to the field of political ecology as directly as some people who might identify as a political ecologist. But you know, mm. I work with political ecologists and on political ecology type things. So. yeah yeah um i i think we can maybe start with the uh your paper on uh, or papers on uh, bingos on big sure. international ngos um so i guess maybe we can just start with the because so you've written i i didn't understand if these were like um kind of papers that had evolved into other papers or this were different ones because I saw a few that seem to have quite similar uh, yeah. content but can you maybe start by telling us a little bit about what bingos are or like how you define a bingo yeah so there's of big international NGOs uh, that's what the acronym is um, and in the world of sort of conservation and um, environmental and ecological matters um, it's usually, you know, the the big giants, the WWF, the Nature Conservancy, CI, um, that are identified as the sort of prominent bingos. But they are, you know, they are NGOs that are often kind of federated. They might have an international um, branch of the organization as well as country offices. Um, and they obviously have a particular um reach and influence by virtue of being international right and it and that scale um where you can be easily identified as a a bingo um often brings with it a a sort of level of um partnership with other non-ngo organizations perhaps sort of um private sector or you know like multinational corporations um as part of being uh an international um, sort of almost diplomatic force as an NGO, right? And you see that mm. very clearly with the 
the bingos that those papers you're referring to that do overlap a bit in content mm. um uh were co-authored with or lead author by mary manton um mm. and the <laughs> the reason they're similar but a bit different is also because uh there's one version that is part of a book that mary edited with uh right. philippe okay. uh philippe lebion which is a bit longer oh no and, really oh, yeah okay yeah i've read and, a few of his things he's great there's another version which is um, published in Policy Matters, which is the IUCN mm -hmm. uh, journal, right? Um, okay. Also in an issue that I think was possibly co-edited by Philippe Leville. Okay. But, you know, the, the kind of, um, yeah, the book, it went into, it was longer, but there was a sort of uh, intent to get something maybe being slightly um, challenging towards bingos in the IUCN journal because the IUCN is this big uh, sort of organization that brings together uh, many NGOs and business organizations and, and multilateral organizations at their, at their big kind of congresses, right? So the hope was that it might have been <laughs> read by some of the people that it was I, about. <laughs> I see, yeah. And so the paper that was in question is called um, for people who want to to uh, read along or, <laughs> or just have a look after. Uh, bingo Complicity, uh, Necropolitical Ecology, and Environmental Defenders. Uh, so this uh, from 2021 with uh, Mary Menton and, and Paul Gilbert then. Um, that's the one that at least that I have been reading up on. And uh, yeah, no, it was a great read. And honestly, a lot of stuff in there that unfortunately I hadn't heard about, even if... I'm, you know, like, this is the type of thing that I'm studying, like, I'm, you know, I would say that I'm relatively connected to these issues, or at least like, uh, aware of these issues. And a lot of these I had very briefly maybe heard about, but not really in detail, or definitely, I did not know about like, how messed up some of these things were, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, can you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, kind of what you discuss in the paper and, and kind of how these bingos come up as, uh, you know, kind of potential villains in the story, in the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, one thing that is worth saying is with, with, with any like massive organization, which these NGO bingos are, um, you know, the, the corporate person, the, the organizational mm. body is, is diverse right so there might be uh of wings of these organizations that are doing things that you might be more sympathetic to than other wings and there will be you know this stuff is obvious uh but sometimes worth saying just in case the critique gets interrupted yeah. as far no too, no yeah sorry of, uh, by, by villain i, I don't yeah, mean no, no. Uh... <laughs> but, but also i don't disagree with that entirely right and yeah. and uh, you know it's interesting what you're saying about not maybe being aware of some of this stuff because the paper <laughs> um the, the legal department of our university checked in with us when we put this in our online depository and okay. um you know all of it's from like secondary sources right? <laughs> so we were you know this is all out there um in newswires and in in other reports the, the the impetus for writing this particularly from mary is you know working with um people who might be construed as environmental defenders or land defenders in ecuador and mm -hmm. brazil you know, Mary's recording their mistrust, um, 
concern about the failure of bingos and then you know people seeing the very well publicized alliances between the big conservation organizations and the extractive corporations and thinking well you know you guys have a part of your website that is about concern for environmental and land defenders and environmental human rights defenders and then a part of your website championing why it's a really really good idea to um, have a joint initiative with one of the world's largest mining or oil extraction companies yeah. right how, how are you going to expect uh, frontline defenders to actually take your professed solidarity seriously mm -hmm. um, so then we just you know this was written like we said for the uh, UCN sort of house journal uh, and just wanted to put a lot of stuff that's already out there in one frame to say like you know maybe you need to reconsider this attitude of this approach to partnership with um with uh large mining and uh, and oil companies mm -hmm. and it's it's uh <laughs> what is quite the way i originally came to this to thinking about this from the other side right so mary came to it from working with the uh, frontline defenders who were very suspicious or frustrated with uh, these bingos i came from doing kind of part of my phd research uh, at uh, mining and oil industry csr and sort of ethical mining conferences in the city of london and uh, seeing how um you know partnership with uh, ngos big ngos was construed right mm -hmm. and um my my then supervisor now colleague dino rajak has also written about this written about these events as theaters of virtue where mm -hmm. a big deal is made about like the constructive people the people we can actually work mm -hmm. with the sensible people in the room and when you look at the <laughs> the sort of um the management literature those sort of organizational studies literature of uh, where there was this shift in an attitude towards NGOs. It actually comes from this like management guru, John Elkington, who is also a WWF ambassador or patron. Right, okay. And so sort of around the turn of the millennium, he was like pushing this idea that, yeah, you know, people were with the, there was a lot of anxiety about the impact that internationally networked NGOs were having uh, challenging, um, mining and oil companies through the impacts of their operations on you know land and life and um the, the role that sort of network communication was and the early days of the internet were, was having on mm -hmm. corporate reputation and so ngos were seen as like uh troublemakers right uh polarizers and then uh, elkington came up with a schema which is still like taught in in some like um, corporate responsibility courses that you can differentiate between you know polarizers and integrators and um i think he assigned the different categories animals like whales and seals or something uh i can't remember exactly <laughs> but you know this idea that you know there, there are these polarizing ngos and and they, they, they want to fight against business and and they won't take us anywhere but they're kind of integrators and you know people who recognize we've got to work together right rather than being reckless and just making unfounded uh accusations and so on right and and this rhetoric of partnership has now become so incredibly normal um partly because um these bingos have become big have expanded you know there's a famous paper which i know has generated uh, uh, uh an amount of controversy but there's still a lot of good in it 
Um, Mac Chapin wrote this paper about the growth of some of the big um, NGOs and kind of the relationships that were taken on to get the money to grow mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. brought them closer and closer together with um, organizations that you might think as antithetical to yeah. uh, the concerns of, of political ecologists. And you can see um, that in some documentaries as well, like the plan of the humans, even, you know, with, with all of its fault, because it, it did have faults for sure. But I think one of the things it did quite well was to show also that like, uh, closeness and, and there's also Endesive, another documentary that was right. very good uh, showing like the Canadian uh, Boreal Forest Agreement and how uh, Greenpeace, I think, like for the Greenpeace Forest Organization was partnering up with like one of the biggest forestry <laughs> industries. That was always a bit crazy. Yeah, so you see like um, Conservation International, TNC, WWF, getting into very close relationships with Shell, Exxon, BHP, um, Chevron, um, but not just that, really actively going all in on this, embracing this idea, right? You know, mm. um, chief scientists and representatives, particularly about a decade ago, were doing all these like blogs and briefings, like, yeah, you know, it, we have to partner with these guys precisely because you think they're the enemy, you know, like, because that's where the change is going to come from. Mm. And you can, so, yeah, okay, you can. <laughs> you There's can an so, argument to be made. Like, yeah. I think that, like, it's a discussion that you could potentially have if it, if there's like results to back it up, I think. Yeah, but it also comes, it, it's sort of building on that yeah. like Elkington typology, right? That like, mm. yeah, you guys might think it's, it's a bad idea, but actually if we really want to have change, we have to partner up with the worst guys, right? <laughs> the, the, the guys who are doing this damage and like, you know, we're happy to do that. Um, because other, and yeah, like you said, there's maybe an argument you could make for that, but it kind of rests on this idea that mm. if you're critiquing the operations of these organizations that put people's, you know, land and livelihoods and lives at risk sometimes. Um, if you're oppositional to that, then you're somehow part of the problem, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is one of the things Mary and I were talking about is you could find on the WWF website, you know, uh, and I think some WWF um, staff members writing on Medium about, you know, the importance of uh, considering environmental defenders as uh, the most at-risk human rights defenders and so on. Mm um while also <laughs> coming under fire for quite rightly you know for seeming complicity in uh human rights abuses um perpetrated by um conservation guards that seem to either have funding or support from wwf and you know i don't want to get you into legal trouble because <laughs> of picking my words carefully because they no, had they had, it's they had this internal yeah. review after you probably remember the buzzfeed Kathmandu post investigation bit, yeah, yeah. which again was like raking up things that have been written about for a really long time right it's amazing how much of this stuff has been public domain for a long time mm. and they did an internal review and said you know there's no evidence that uh wwf staff director participated in or encouraged human rights abuses yeah but there is there was evidence in their own report as minority rights group showed that wrf staff were aware of allegations right yeah so yeah. you know um it just becomes harder to take seriously the idea that this um partnership language 
is just about sort of a, a reasoned pragmatism when you see a willingness to partner up with both kind of um, problematic extractive organizations and uh, violent forms of conservation. Um, it, you know, it makes you question what kind of attitude to frontline defenders some of these bingos might actually have or might be willing to to um to you know put into practice yeah and i i do i actually sorry i do want to get into this wwf example if if you don't mind uh sure. you know i i don't care they can they can try us <laughs> um we're we're speaking the truth and we're yeah. legally putting uh you know little words here and there to make sure that uh they know when we are um making statements that are potentially uh just based on allegations but you argue in the paper that bingos can frame themselves as supporters and protectors of environmental yeah. defenders like you said before but that at the same time they're complicit and i think that like you said that the uh wwf uh, the allegations of a wwf trained and funded uh, kind of set of, of park guards uh, that was in Nepal and Cameroon and in the Central African Republic. That's got to be one of the most egregious kind of examples of of what you talk about in the more broader sense of bingos working with this stuff. Um, can I, I think you know not unfortunately not many people are aware of this kind of story. Can you maybe yeah. tell us a bit about the investigative work that went into this and like what the details? Uh, are of these allegations of, of these illegal uh, kind of inhumane acts? Yeah, so, so I mean, um, there was a big investigation, I think, so 2018, 2019 by BuzzFeed and Kathmandu Post, looking into um, uh, the killing of um, the killing by park guards in Nepal who um, in some cases seem to go on to later be acknowledged, promoted, sort of celebrated by WWF. Um, and this kind of similar cases in the, the other context you mentioned of a events happening <laughs> involving violence, um, which not only did not lead to a kind of total exit of WWF, but sometimes there was a kind of furthering of or deepening of the relationship with those organizations or specific guards and leaders of guards. Um, and, and by illegal acts, I mean, I, you know, we, I think we can be clear that these are like extreme, like, you know, the allegations at least that were made by buzzfeed were of murder yeah. and of, of torture and things like that like it's yeah really yes fucked up stuff. yeah and um and so you know the question that came to that um expert panel that investigated kind of an independent panel that did a sort of semi-internal investigation of wwf um and and then that you know the the press briefing from that report is very carefully worded but the actual contents of it show that a lot of this problematic stuff was going on mm -hmm. um and you know 
I think the key thing is that there seems evidence that some people were aware. And if they were not aware, then there's a serious failing <laughs> in yeah. due diligence. And then there's questions as well about the, to what extreme you to what extent you're willing to support kind of uh, green violence, like militarized conservation anyway. <laughs> like e even before there are um, records of abuses, torture and killings and, and threats, um, is it a good idea <laughs> to arm parked guards and, and sort of support that kind of fortress conservation when, when we have so much evidence that it not only doesn't work as a conservation model, but is so frequently associated with, um, with violence. Um, and, you know, um, it's maybe not totally surprising because <laughs> um, a, a lot of big, conservation NGOs and a lot of the sort of big international conservation movement um, comes out of a, a history of, of conservation that was, you know, semi-militarized or tied to a kind of um, a view of the legitimate European sports hunter versus the native poacher that could be dealt with either through um, harsh criminal punishment or through violence, you know, in the British colonial period, which has been well, well documented by many environmental historians. Mm. Um, and there's, there's even kind of, I know you, you might have heard of Operation Lock. Um, mm. So <laughs> one of the shadier parts in the WWF's uh, past where they were engaged with uh, um, militia, uh, so private military companies would be a polite way of <laughs> describing them oh, in, right. yeah, in, yeah. Okay. in apartheid South Africa. And, okay, yeah. you know, even if you're saying, okay, we're only engaging with them for conservation purposes. Well, you know, I mean, you've got to know what you're doing and who you're dealing with. And so there's been a long willingness to, um, to pursue that kind of approach to, uh, to conservation. And, you know, the, the other point that we made in that paper is that, um, you know, what is interesting is, although there's a kind of slight acknowledgement at times of by some bingos and, and some parts of, you know, WWF publications about what happens to so-called environmental and land defenders, they are very um, keen to record uh, the, what happens to park guards, right? Right. Um, the, the the killings of, of park guards. And I, I don't mean at all to trivialize that or to um, devalue the lives of, of park guards who are killed. And there are gonna be a lot of different reasons why they are targeted and lose their lives while, while they're working as park guards. But it's sort of, you know, we were struck by this, uh, this language um, of the partner that WWF compiles this database of uh, rangers who who were killed um is called the thin green line right and you know it's it's hard to not associate that That's with the rhetoric of kind of crazy thin, yeah <laughs> you know this idea of the thin blue line which upholds this uh this idea that there is um 
you know, the thin blue line is where you find legitimate violence against unruly populations who threaten the order of the state. And it's the thin green line seems to be a way of saying this is legitimate violence against people who threaten some idea of governed nature, right? Um, and there's, there's just some very queasy parallels uh, in, in the way that certain, the, the loss of certain lives are marked. And the, the, the thin green light, is, uh, light, sorry, the thin green, thin light, green light is actually used in their papers, like in their reports? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, thin green line is an organization that uh, WWF right. co-published these stats with. But, you know, the thin green line indicates something very similar to that, right? Mm -hmm. There are forms of legitimate violence. There are certain people who have the authority to perpetrate that violence in the name of conservation. Um, whose lives matter more, who deserve to be recorded more, right? You know, if you look at that, there is a very stark difference in the sort of total acknowledgement of what's going on when mm. you see this kind of attempted distance from park guards, where there does seem to have been sort of some kind of relationship um, with WWF personnel um, and park guards who have been accused of killings and violence um and the victims of those uh those killings are yeah. you know they're not memorialized by wwf but rangers who die in their job are and again i'm not i'm not trying to you yeah, know no. dehumanize those rangers but it's still it it's it stands as a a way of marking some lives and not others in the interests of mm -hmm. kind mm -hmm. of upholding a certain at, uh, approach to to militarize conservation, right? And and maintaining yeah, yeah. The, the perceived legitimacy of that. Yeah. So yeah, like you say, fiction of legitimate violence. Yeah. Um yeah, I'm really interested to, to ask like you in these instances where these bingos are clearly going beyond sort of any sort of pragmatic uh um intention, any pragmatic approach to these uh partnerships with corporate or other uh, private organizations. Um, I'm just trying to wonder, like, what would incentivize sort of this really avid support of those organisations? You know, is it is it just kind of plain self-interest? You know, just to snip, cut, so to say, cutting off the cream of 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 any money or revenue involved, or like you know, uh, like any any private bribing, or like maybe the narrative of um, the value of these partnerships has become so powerful that they genuinely believe that avidly supporting these organizations is the right thing to do. I'm just trying to wonder what 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 could possibly incentivize them moving beyond that mere pragmatic intention. That's a really good question. And I think there's a number of different ways you can answer it, right? Um, uh, and you, you can kind of answer it in similar ways that uh, various political economists and sociologists have looked at this idea of like a, the creation of a capitalist class or a transnational yeah. capitalist class, right? Some people will try and look at interlocking directorates like an inter interlocking um, board level membership of large corporations to try and see, you know, is there this interlocking capitalist class? Other people think about, you know, what is the actual, the sites of interaction through, you know, certain social forums and business mm -hmm. schools and stuff where people develop shared interests. And, you know, um, you can look at bingos and their relationship with uh, large extractive corporations in a similar way. And like I said, my former supervisor and our colleague, Dinah Rajak, uh, 
her paper Theatres of Virtue is a really clear sort of exploration of how um, kind of ethical business, um, green, like broadly sort of green capitalist meetings, right, where NGOs and, and business come together are like theatres of virtue. They're places to perform the relationships that you have uh, in order to reproduce those relationships and continue what you're doing. And part of that involves celebrating, you know, and I've been in, in, in some of these events as well, where there's a very clear thing about, you know, it's great to have you guys in the room and you're the, you're the guys who get it and you want to work with us. And those guys trying to blockade us outside, you know, they, they don't really want mm. progress and so on. And so people are socialized into this idea that is formalized in John Elkington's writings about, you know, there are the, uh, the sort of um, people who uh, provoke and oppose and the people who kind of, and polarizing the people who integrate and get things done. Um, so it's a kind of social reproduction, um, you know, socializing people into the idea that this is the only way to get things done. At the kind of starker <laughs> sort of um, just looking at uh, who has influence, right? Um, there are people who've looked at, um, I think someone called Hoffman has written quite a lot in like a management literature and like the Stanford Social Innovation Review and elsewhere of like interlocking uh, membership, board level membership between large, yeah, yeah. like chemical extractive and other um, corporations that you might think maybe not so good for the environment and these large bingos, right? And so that kind of, as that interlock tightens and then, uh, decisions are made, strategic directions are set. And then you also get kind of some of these bingos coming up with like leadership academies, Conservation International has a like center for environmental leadership in business. And, you know, it, it probably starts with this idea of like, it would be great if these guys were more green, yeah. but then it also becomes a way to like reproduce this idea that there are certain kinds of partnership and productive relationships and certain kinds that are just like hostile and they don't want to get things yeah. done, right? Um, and again, this shouldn't massively surprise us because like, um, I think like in the 60s, um, John Loudon, the general director of Royal Dutch Shell was brought into WWF International. Um, so like these, these sort of <laughs> partnerships go way back, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, but I don't know, I guess it's a scale thing as well. And there's a lot of people who probably, they wanna do something. And then this narrative of like, okay, you can be one of the people who integrate and work together and work as a partner, or you can be someone who throws rocks from the sidelines and gets nothing done. Yeah. Right. Um, and probably for a lot of people, that's kind of compelling. <laughs> and it, it seems like definitely from how you sort of describe, you know, the, the hypothetical thought processes of these people, it seems like there's definitely prejudices involved. Like, would, would you say that maybe it's, it's also the, the background of these, um, people holding high offices in the bingos, you know, such as, you know, coming from, I don't know, Western or, you know, comfortably well-off backgrounds that makes them more receptive to uh, perhaps corporate agents over, you know, indigenous locals or rural locals uh, as a um, possible explanation. Possibly, like, I, you know, um, <laughs> without um, talking to 
lots of yeah. them directly. I, yeah. I don't know how certain mm -hmm. I want to be with my answer, but like what you can see is that there is a sort of professionalization of, of bingo leadership as well, right? And there's a kind of circulation. You know, we often have this idea of like three secretaries, <laughs> you know, um, very problematic model, but this, yeah. this idea of like, okay, you have civil society and NGOs and you have the state and then you mm. have the private sector. But, you know, a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of rotating careers, right? Between mm. like, um, you work in the foreign office, you work at the um, government affairs and social affairs desk of a mining company, you work at yeah. a big NGO and, you, you know. Love revolving um, doors. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's worth mentioning as well, just so it doesn't sound too muddy for any listeners that like, you know, we, we've been talking about two different uh, forms of complicity with bingos, right? The, the, the kind of complicity with green violence and militarized conservation and the complicity with um, um, extractive corporations, extractive, yeah. right? And, and there's diff they're, they're different relationships, different complicity, but the reason we bring them into the same frame is they both um, have a relationship to why people who might be called environmental and land defenders would not necessarily want to trust such mm -hmm. organizations. Yeah, and there, there are severe sure. aspects of uh, coloniality that you mention in your, in your paper. Um, can you maybe tell us about, yeah, how these kind of, colonial tactics and ideas and, and kind of biases have have maybe carried on from uh the you know the 20th century and throughout to today yeah that's a really interesting question um because i think this is it's something that's kind of quite uh quite well established in the kind of environmental history literature <laughs> that a lot of the precursors of the bingos were essentially um like uh, <laughs> you know like in the uk we have like the british association of shooting and conservation <laughs> like those those what? two things go to, <laughs> the, the, it's a countryside organization those two things go together right in okay. a certain kind of rural imaginary because you conserve landscapes in which to in which to hunt right for sport okay. and there are a lot of organizations like i think like flora and fauna international um, I might want to check that again so I don't get in trouble. <laughs> um, and various others have kind of evolved out of these like societies to protect the fauna and flora of empire. And so we can shoot them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but so that set, uh, Europeans and so that Europeans can, white yeah. Europeans can shoot them because they, mm. they enact sport hunting. Right. Right. I think again, this might be worth checking i think the name is mackenzie one of the like prominent historians of like colonial conservation looking at these distinctions between you know european white european sport hunters and the the wasteful native who is sort of rapaciously and i'm using mm. native as, as the, the language of the time yeah. like rapaciously poaching mm. <laughs> right um you know, as an illegitimate form of hunting, e even if the, you know, the, there's not necessarily any foundation to that. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, it's something, you know, yeah. How exactly is that reproduced? We can draw lines by saying, okay, here is the history of a lot of big conservation organizations come from this like aristocratic idea of like shooting and conservation. 
um, and certain racialized groups being licensed to hunt and others not. Mm. Um, and we can see that in their roots. We can see the way they uh, engage with green and militarized conservation today, precisely tracing like how that you know is reproduced by people who work in these organizations. Um, I'm maybe I'm sure there are people who've looked at this, but I'm not one of them. Okay, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, to to actually you know, because it's one thing to to trace a to trace a history. It's another to show how it sort of reproduces a certain way of doing conservation but yeah. what we can see in the present right like in the terms of like drawing these long lines and not being quite sure how they connect is that there, there, there's Rosalind Duffy um yeah has you know written loads about how, fantastic um, research yeah uh this language a few years back just linking um poaching with terrorism right mm -hmm um which when you pick away at it it's like just there's no evidence for this huge <laughs> rhetoric right and then you think okay well like it even if the tracing of the link still needs to be fleshed out in some ways it's hard to not think of the way that um you know non-european populations in africa were not populations wrong word, like you know, local groups were framed as illegitimate and deserving of criminalization, sanction, mm -hmm. um, threat of deadly force uh, for being deemed poachers, <laughs> according to sketchy grounds. And then here you have it again, this kind of um, poacher um, terrorism alleged network that disappears when you look for it. It makes you think, yeah, okay, maybe those colonial roots of conservation actually took took hold in certain conservation imaginaries, and they're not like necessarily going to go away so easily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even yeah. if they're going to be reformulated according to sort of like anxieties and ways of like militarizing and securitizing conservation space that are different today, right? Um, there's some parallels, which it's like, it would be super naive and innocent, uh, um, irresponsible to pretend like that there's no parallels. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a bit about this word that comes up in your paper, um, which I believe is potentially the, the term coined by uh, Achille Mbembe, but the, can you explain what you mean by necropolitics? Yeah, okay, so um, there's a number of other people who've sort of linked this idea of necropolitics to um, aspects of political ecology, who mm -hmm. we cite in the longer version of the paper, who kind of, you know, are basically saying you have, um, yeah, you have conservation apparatuses that structure the world such that some people are more exposed to the threat of harm and death than others, right? Mm -hmm. You are governing a space, you're governing nature um, in order to save some lives mm. and expose others to risk of yeah. loss of life, There's right? Politics and, of subjugation of life to yeah. the powers of death. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes that crosses the sort of human more than human divide in that spaces are administered to preserve, protect, non-human life but exposing certain kinds of human lives people categorized as you know poachers mm, yeah. <laughs> um 
otherwise often marginalized yeah um and they are by by governing that space through armed you know militarized conservation you are exposing certain groups to the risk of death in the interest of exposing of of um, promoting the life of other humans and non-humans who inhabit that space right mm -hmm. i guess it's kind of what we're referring to by necropolitical ecology and that but again it's, it's kind of boring from several others who who've uh who we cite in that paper yeah because i guess mbembe was uh well I, I learned of mbembe through my just my supervisor's papers um from alexander dunlap because he he kind of uses it in terms of the supply chains uh right. necropolitics uh but it's interesting to see how that this term and like other terms as well can kind of cross boundaries a little bit into the you know conservation field for example um because at the end of the day i guess it's there is this real like web of uh, of effects born out of a kind of ethos that uh, pervades like through everything like we i think you know and, and i think decolonial theorists really have it like right like completely right is that these colonial aspects uh have just not ended like our colonial mindsets have not gone away they're still there they've just kind of changed a little bit and i think the necropolitics stuff is a really good way to kind of understand that a little bit um through, through yeah that. more than mindsets though i think uh, yes yes sorry yeah, yeah. So, in part or, in part yeah. but yeah for sure not just <laughs> yeah just, just to kind of give you credit to them is kavanaugh and Himmelfarb, um Mm. writing in antipode used the phrase necropolitical ecology so kind of coupling uh okay in Bembe to to political ecology so we should we shouldn't take credit for that <laughs> yeah 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 no no <laughs> credit due where we earned um yeah yeah i i want to move on to the critical materials paper stuff so, but yeah. I just, maybe one last question on this topic would be uh you know because we have kind of mentioned the coloniality and 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 the kind of the way in which environmental organizations big uh, bingos i mean uh have you know potentially uh taken part in and made things uh taken part in activities that have endangered people and made things a lot worse uh for the environmental movement at large but how so these are like the problems that you guys have kind of uh, diagnosed but how can we take an approach that decolonializes this and and kind of i guess what's the fix <laughs> is what i'm really it's, wanting to ask yeah um mm. <laughs> it's it, it, you know the that. answer can be no. i don't know i mean very often in academia yeah. i feel like we're not allowed to say i don't know but it's a yeah. valid answer mm yeah okay um i don't know <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. like what would to, to you know to, to, there there are the people working on sort of models of like convivial conservation um as other ways of thinking about conservation which i think mary mentions in some of her work um uh <sighs> there's a lot to be um <laughs> there's a lot that needs to be kind of disassembled yeah. as well for you know both in terms of the way bingos work the way uh, extractive corporations work the way militarized conservation works that um 
uh, I know I open myself up to only like yeah so like oh you've only done half the work by diagnosing or like outlining the problem uh, which is fine yeah it's a big Uh, part of of finding the solution is finding the problem first (laughs) mm. um I'm not um yeah, I'd, I'd be reluctant to say I have any kind of confidence schema for, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that I could roll out um, a blueprint for <laughs> for fixing yeah. it. Although I could point to like things that need to be uh, undone and rebuilt in yeah. ways maybe yet to be seen. <laughs> I mean, I think I think maybe something we can definitely agree on as a as a you know a potential first step is already for these bingos to be a lot more transparent about what yeah. they do and how they do things mm-hmm. and also to stop uh, kind of crushing dissent and investigative work into their actions. I think that would be, yeah. I don't know, for, from your paper, that's also definitely something that I got as a takeaway. Yeah, I think, I think that would be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to be honest, like maybe having, um, you know, international, um, solidarity networks that don't have such massive overlap with like <laughs> extractive and petrochemical company boards and mm-hmm. part you know just so that yeah yeah th- there's no, a lot to be done yeah. but like i i d- it's not i'm not someone who's like oh my job is only to critique things and then i'm gonna leave it but it's more just like this <laughs> there's stuff that needs to be unbuilt right yeah, yeah pulled yeah, down yeah. no it's and extremely complex what, what it would what it would look like on the other side you know that would have to be uh negotiated um mm. by many people other than me <laughs> yeah so. yeah i guess it's kind of the it also calls back to this kind of idea of uh, kind of democratic process of of decision making is something that doesn't need to happen like now like we don't have to make the decisions of what it looks like we more have to yeah like you say unbuild and then allow for a a a construction that is conducive to positive change yeah and also just like moving away from this idea that you kind of like the best leadership is to be found with the people doing the most harm (laughs) because (laughs) which is like yeah you find it in all of the the big three and like you know ci and tnc and wwf and even iucn patrons saying like yeah we need to work with the enemy because if we change them then everything else follows but that's just like such a such a naive like because then you're upholding them in, mm-hmm. in a place where they shouldn't be and in in, in a in a less less colonial world and a less unjust world they wouldn't be the leaders so like (laughs) entrenching that yeah i think what we said earlier was that if if there wasn't like there is an argument to be made if the results showed that it was effective but they don't they simply don't they just show that these Mm. groups get co-opted you know so badly that they end up fighting against the people in the end so so i know i i think you're right that it's, it's extremely complex in how to salvage even this or even if you know maybe some people could say that this is not salvageable that these bingos bingos are not the way to go that maybe smaller yeah. more local kind of environmental ngos mm. are the way to go yeah 
Yeah, I, I mean, following on from that, I, I would wonder, like, would you, would you say that, you know, what Skander just said, that is sort of a inherent flaw to bingos and, you know, maybe would any sort of superior organisation uh, that would not be subject to, you know, this, this behaviour would be something, a one that has any sort of accountability or relation to sort of democratic democratic um the threat of being revoked so to say because it seems just yeah. ngos are just far too distant not only in a structural democratic sense but just distant from people's minds as well they know they don't really have any say whatsoever so maybe it, it should always be contained within a state or or a, um yeah i mean some some sort of larger democratic body international body yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think there's always, there's always by necessity and there's always going to be and there should be like sort of transnational solidarity networks. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's always been a big part of like liberation movements in the, the sort of as well or former third world and like um, all kinds of, you know, uh, you have solidarity networks like the London Mining Network that's actually a network of loads of different organisations that coordinate their action and and work towards common goals and I don't think it's necessarily about sort of confining things to national borders because that creates all kinds of other um, problems but maybe it's a question of organizational form and organizational origin like you know can they the WWF something that was founded by a bunch of minor European royals and shell executives is it ever going to be a good thing I don't know how much you have to undo before that's like (laughs) you know you know like (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, I just just want to potentially move on to the critical material stuff now yeah. because I know that we're we're you know going to be a little bit short on time on that one otherwise. But um, sure. but yeah, super super interesting work on on, on bingos for sure. There's definitely tons more to, to talk about and, and and more specific examples as well to get into. Um, but this is a really important topic as well. The the kind of political risk uh, rhetoric of yeah. critical materials. So this is something that we see increasingly in uh, in the industry uh do you think that there's a lot of anxiety right now around the security of raw materials supply yeah. within that industry yeah um so like my interest in this is actually, actually came sort of not from my like political ecology mm-hmm. side but i've long been interested in in for various reasons so political risk insurance and political risk analysis uh, industries and something I'm still writing about and I've got a paper coming out soon-ish with uh, Maria Divica-Steva on the kind of political risk Im- imaginaries um, and it's kind of like this this thing that's become so normalized as a way to start, oh you talk about political risk people you know you, you have companies that specialize in political risk analysis they can do you a nice colorful map or a bunch of metrics um, Condoleezza Rice wrote a book about how political risk, like The Economist has a guide to country and political risk, like it's a normal category, right? right yeah. But you go back 40 years, 50 years, it wasn't a normal category, right? And it's sort of, it's it, the anxiety that is now called political risk emerged as a problem for multinationals and for foreign investors following um, national liberation independence and decolonization movements right mm. the sort of 
conservative economic historian Niall Ferguson, who's the guy who likes to sort of champion empire and um, long for it to return. One of the things that, man. Yeah, well, <laughs> one of the things that he has. I written, said it, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of the things he's said in um, in one of his papers that is 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 a kind of like robust claim. Maybe maybe the like political impetus behind why he's saying it or the frame is different. How I would say it, but he, he writes about how like the only real risk that British investors had to think about during empire was the duration of empire, right? Hmm. In terms of like the stability of your your agreements with a sovereign of a territory, because like yeah, it's a British possession, right? Um, so when former co colonies gained their sort of formal independence, um, there was a new risk <laughs> that you know, and uh, historians like uh, Stanley Cabrin have looked at how like you know early late 60s no one really knows what this is and then and then sort of 70s people start thinking about it and it becomes a concern basically because it's the risk of people whose sovereignty you no longer control <laughs> or you know the sort of expressions of sovereignty that might be counter to your business interests mm. which could include nationalization or it could include other kinds of measures that were articulated right as uh, as as rights by former colonized states through the new the new international economic order, right? Which is all mm -hmm. about, you know, we have the right to develop along any lines necessary, including if we, if it's necessary, nationalization, subsidies, et cetera, um, that could pose a threat to your interest, to your investment. So then political risk becomes a language to describe that. And then through a series of interesting innovations in the city of London, you get political risk insurance, right? Mm -hmm. You can insure against confiscation, expropriation, nationalization, um, devaluation of currency. Um, and those insurance terms then enter into the like political risk analysis uh, market, right? Um, so the commodification it, of, of like people's independence movements really yeah these, like, yeah realities. so the transformation of like the reality of sovereignty into a, a, a an anxiety yeah <laughs> and there's there's a lot of interesting his, historic and um, historical research on the kind of like um you know settler anxieties in the the, the last days of of uh, empire in in british uh, colonies in africa and, and you see a lot of the anxieties about like the loss of assets, the appearance of roadblocks that are going to uh, interfere with getting things to port and interfere with movement, uh, yeah. the risk of nationalization are basically now those sort of uh, late colonial settler anxieties and are codified as risks, right? Mm -hmm. um, which can be insured against and, and managed. But they also, you know, there's been this creep away from like the 70s, um, so global south third world is movement saying yeah new international economic order we will run our pathway to development how we choose as independent sovereign people um that's sort of now like sort of buried in history and it's just like fact that these are risks right <laughs> the way it's presented by risk analysts and um is that yeah it's bad it's, it's a threat like the risk of nationalization or the risk of um, creeping nationalization or creeping expropriation, which you see as a term coming to cover ever more things like, you know, 
taxes, royalties, environmental uh, legislation that makes doing business more expensive becomes framed as like a sort of subcategory of an attempted nationalization or confiscation, right? Um, Okay. And then what interests me in terms of the like critical minerals is how this really problematic sort of colonial imaginary that underpins a lot of um, political risk metrics um, creeps into a work by, by like the EU and the US and the UK in determining what counts as a critical or strategic mineral for like green metals, battery metals, whatever you're going to call them, like metals for the... Um, decarbonization transition electric vehicles electrification of mm. various things you need battery metals right lithium cobalt yeah um and so they come up with these lists of strategically important or critical minerals and the way that their criticality is often calculated is partly how much do we need them <laughs> right for a projected electric future and partly what is the political risk of getting them from given territories like mm. the drc right and then you see yeah, so some state apparatus, but also like as reading like um, industrial ecology journals and ecological economics journals where people are like working with these models of criticality using deeply problematic sort of <laughs> mm. um, colonial, like these indices from very, very conservative organizations. Um, mm -hmm that rank political risk basically reflecting their frustration with the idea that former colonies have sovereignty <laughs> being folded into a measure of criticality for like securing battery metal supply chains right and so right. that i i think like the the way those that language of political risk is seen as so normal and the way people do not frequent will use that language without connecting it to its history which is a history of frustration with um with sovereignty and the kind of uh, slow erasure of the third world's project and the new international economic order ambitions that story isn't told instead yeah it's just political risk just another measure just something you've got to think about mm -hmm. if you want to electrify yeah, it sanitizes it doesn't it? yeah we're all for the green transition by the way these are some of the risks some of them we call political risks never mind about the history of that and it's deep, deeply sexualization yeah yeah that you would have like because, uh, certain kinds of like industrial ecologists ecological economists people who might be like pushing for whatever their vision of a green future electrified future decarbonized future is casually taking up this frequently under-examined language mm -hmm. um yeah that's troubling <laughs> so yeah and and oh sorry jamie did you have a question no no go ahead oh, okay i was just gonna say that with your colleague maria uh, sorry, I'm butchering the name probably, but Maria Devik Steve, Steve. Yeah, Maria Devik Steve. Devik Steve. I am. I'm sorry, Maria. I'm probably. <laughs> Our well, apologies so. from all, but but uh, you're both of your fantastic work. Uh, in this work, you argue that the language of political risk acts as a racial vernacular of development. Yeah. Um, in in what ways kind of do you see this like? Because I guess we, we've already mentioned a little bit with the colonial kind of uh, and decolonization history of it, but are there more obvious, more kind of yeah. overt ways in which uh, it takes a racial form? Yeah, for sure. And that phrase, racial vernacular development, that's something that we have borrowed uh, from Jimmy Pierre, um, 
anthropology and African studies professor at uh, uh, UCLA, I want to say, one of the University of California uh, <laughs> campuses. Um, and Jamima talks about this sort of like racial vernacular development as these languages, like uh, she focuses in one of her papers on like good governance and transparency. And it's kind of this language that sustains racial thought by um, indexing, it seeming to be technical, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Lack of good governance, right? Except it sort of taps into a longer history of framing Black Africa as, um, Black African states as characterized by lack, right? Lack of capacity in some way, lack of development. Um, lack of like recognition or, or sort of equality in 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 a deeply racialized hierarchy right okay. so precisely because it purports to be technical it works so well <laughs> uh, and you know it's not uncommon to have i'm you know i'm sure i'm not the only person who's had conversations with people about how like you know there's something different about the corruption in the uk to corruption in in various african states because it's you know it's it's not really like built baked in there and you know, i think those arguments may be becoming harder to sustain in the uk now <laughs> because <laughs> As a scandal just, a week yeah. comes out yeah but yeah. But, yeah. but i'm sure they're not totally gone away and there's always been scandals that people have chosen not to take as indexing some kind of fundamental political lack around the british public or the british state right the isolated mm -hmm. event isolated event isolated event isolated event whereas it happens elsewhere you tie it into this uh, indexing of, of raci racialized hierarchy and then the overtness comes in when like both Miriam and i spent some time doing research with like money investors who would often talk about like yeah the the, the problem with they would use language like you know and uh, some of which I can't repeat, right, in sort of public forums, but some of it just like, oh yeah, the problem with Black Africa, and you know, like, um, you know, before um, Trump started talking about shitholes, people would talk about like shithole jurisdiction, and they'd have a political risk map up to justify it, right, so that the sort of putatively technical bleeds into this very overtly like racialized language of depicting wow. certain places as having a lack, right, um, um, and you know the, 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 there are other people who've written about this kind of thing Paula Butler has a really good book um, that is about kind of race and Canadian mining and in on the African continent and um, how these similar dynamics of like framing lack of capacity and sort of white expertise and uh, sort of play into uh, facilitating uh, mm -hmm. investor-friendly reforms, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, it's um, it, the putatively technical language is frequently um, utilized, put to work in a way that's sometimes implicitly, but often explicitly is tied to indexing racial hierarchy and, and sort of reproducing very uncomfortable uh, and racist ways of talking about um, African territories, African publics, African leadership. Yeah. Um, I, I I think it's it's really interesting to think about how these things are quantified as well because we, we've talked about mm. like the the maps how they can be mapped out, but 
Um, have you seen kind of the methodology of how these people come up with putting a number on such a qualitative uh, thing? Or, or I guess sometimes maybe they have kind of they, you know, get support from yeah. analyses that try to quantify the amount of money bribed or things like that. But but yeah, yeah. How, how do how do they just come up with a number to put on, on the political <laughs> risk stuff? That's super interesting because I spent a lot of time talking to analysts about precisely that because a lot of people who are more um, consider themselves more sophisticated investors or insurance brokers are quite dismissive of the maps and the numbers and they're like, look, that stuff's not really very meaningful. Um, it's a bit of a thumb suck, right? What, like what we pay attention to is the, like, the specific country analyst knowledge, which is like the, the reason I'm so interested in this is because you have all this academic discourse on like... Um, you know, the way that coming to know territories um, is a way of establishing hierarchy um, mm. and otherness, like the whole literature around Orientalism and so on. And then as we see like fewer and fewer area studies departments, like in the UK, but we have more and more graduates going to work in these really profitable <laughs> political risk analysis organizations, right, doing area studies, right? right? Making territories knowledgeable for investors through a very particular language right yeah um and then and then these metrics we come up with and sometimes they're sort of it becomes a comparison right so like people will tweak them speak to their colleagues um use it as like less and less like we can actually tell you what a 7.5 risk of an event is but more it's like it's more than that territory less than that territory more than it was after that election less than it was before that election right so it becomes a a kind of process of building those figures um, by scaffolding off um, the yeah. others. Yeah. Um, but to, to me, like, it's, it's just as interesting that you have you have a lot of people who don't actually take the figures and the map seriously. They take like speaking to the analysts who produce the report seriously. Then why produce all these numbers and all these maps, right? And, and mm. one of the effects it has, whether it's intentional or not, is to create the impression that this is a purely technical way of talking about territory and talking about publics, right? Mm. And, and it's not. And it's interesting <laughs> it's that really it's such a, a non-critical, critical position on the, like, if you take the numberified and or yeah. numerical, like, kind of maps and stuff that you're talking about, that you could say that that's like a field of political risk. And then you have the kind of more, critical in quotation marks field that criticizes that for for putting things into numbers and on maps but yeah. that in itself is so non-critical about its own role yeah yeah no it's it's a kind of like internal it's a internal form of critique that it's like look mm. we we know these are abstractions right yeah. so so that that line of academic critique where there are some people who kind of have have a problem with the quantification of the world because abstracting right that critique's already done internally <laughs> by a lot of people and yet these numbers and charts still circulate and people still put them up on mm. presentations and it helps to create like a yeah like a scaffolding for making territories knowable making them comparable and making them comparable in a beautifully technical language that kind of when you chip at it is like a you know, it's what Shamima Pierre calls a racial vernacular development. Yeah. Jamie, uh, do you want to? Do you have any other questions? Uh, I think I think I asked my big ones. Yeah. I think I'm good. Okay. Um, I think we're gonna potentially 
could I hear? I'm just thinking if I had any other ones at the back of my mind. Um, because I, I did want to ask actually if, um, uh, if, if you think that there is like, that might be something to kind of close off with is, do you think that there is a reasoning behind the political risk narratives that makes sense for the companies themselves? And that like, yeah. like that, of course, you know, they, their main uh, raison d'etre is to, to protect their earnings, to protect profit. Yeah. And so it kind of makes sense for them to track this kind of stuff. Um, but has there been, and, you know, and it makes me think also of like the, what was it called? There's an index as well used in Canada, I think, or in the US. Is that, I can't remember. Is that the Fraser Institute or Heritage Foundation? No, no, those, yeah, those horrendous far-right groups. No, uh, no, no. We talked to Aline Brown, an investigative reporter of The um, the Intercept, and she was telling us right. about this, this one uh, index i can't remember the name right now but anyways that tracked that showed that like uh pipeline companies i think it's in the u.s tracked uh environmental defenders and like yeah. anti-pipeline activists and gave like in their index of risk and things gave a number to how likely the pipeline was to be affected by protests and environmental yeah. direct action and like I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of it's it's impressive in a way to see it evolve that fast into like yeah. such um like Jamie said the sanitized version of counterinsurgency and of like these yeah. kind of, you know more kind of fucked up aspects where then they start to also go after it. So I'm I'm thinking is there because I know that these in this example the pipeline companies really go after the environmental defenders and I'm thinking of this this uh, idea of political risk is also something that then the companies who invest money into places with political risk of try and affect the political risk like do they try to you know put money in <laughs> hello <laughs> if they try and put money into the country in, in specific ways that would reduce their political risk in quotation marks um yeah so i think um maybe two ways to answer that and then i might have to go it's bedtime so yes, yes. no worries no worries um, bedtime for uh, me too <laughs> yes, yes, um yes people use these me uh, measures in in they're useful to them for a lot of reasons even if they don't sort of believe in in the like precision of the metric um there is um an increasing uh there's a kind of evolution of political risk industry where a lot of companies now run dashboards, right? right. That you can see geotagged uh, instances of insurable events, right? So they're all in terms of the insurance categories. Insurable like, events, really? Yeah, like um, confiscation, expropriation, civil unrest, strike, etc. Okay. Put a pin in and and put in, put the this sort of rough number that was at risk. Right. Okay. Um, and you know, people will use that to make a sort of rough assumption. I, I don't. I don't know how much people use it to actually make a decision about like which neighborhood to <laughs> invest in, or mm. or whatever. But um, it will. I my my supposition is that it works to create 
an imaginary of a territory, right? In the same way that like travel writing used to for, um, you know, colonial operatives and so on. Like you, you come to imagine this territory and you come to calculate about where, where to invest and how much money you can make based on a map that tells you where there are insurable risks happening, right? Which might be a bit similar to what people are doing with uh, pipelines. Um, and you and then there are other ways in which yeah this is really useful people want to engage with political risk analysis or insurance because it de-risks their investment in some way if they can get it insured right you know like uh you may have come across like daniela gabor's uh work on the wall street con consensus and the way that multilaterals and um sort of G20 and so on, essentially like asking states in the global south to do the work of you know, reconfigure the state to de-risk incoming investment, right? We're going to mobilize private finance for infrastructure investment, but they don't want to come in case we get a kind of like water war situation where it's too expensive, people can't pay their water bills and then they don't mm. get their money, right? So you as the state are going to guarantee them, you're going to guarantee user risk, you're going to guarantee political risk, right? And in the same way, that is how like the, the broader language of political risk and the presence of political risk insurance is valuable to people, right? They wanna have a way to, yep, there's an opportunity there, whether it's an extractive opportunity or another kind of um, a way to like produce an asset that makes money. But as much as we might justify our profit share on the basis that we take the risk, we're gonna do everything we can to de-risk this. Right? Mm -hmm. And one of the strands in that is like, uh, either using the political risk analysis as a reference point in negotiations with the state or gaining political risk insurance from um, private insurance market to kind of create some kind of backstop in case one of those events does happen. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So really, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It sounds like kind of the uh, dystopian uh, era of like financialization and, and commodification of, of even the most basic of realities in our world yeah. it's uh, i don't know it's it it's quite i i find it quite scary as a concept and as a real thing playing out um, <laughs> but um but yeah on that on that scary note <laughs> sorry <laughs> no, um but yeah paul gilbert thank you so much for coming on thank the show you. is there thank you guys um, is there like something you quickly want to plug where people can find you, uh, where people can ask you some questions if they have any? Yeah, uh, the shortest way to, like, I'm not very active, but I'm on Twitter, it's at Paul R. Gilbert. And you can, if you want to email me, you can like, my work bio is in, the link is in the Twitter bio, mm -hmm. and then you can get my email from that. So, <laughs> it's probably the easiest way. All right. Again, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for thank giving you us very much. Of, uh, your work thank and wisdom. You. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you around. <laughs>